welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast. We're on episode 27, Oom Paul Kruger Escapes Capture at Poplar Grove. I'm your host, Des Latham. This week, our eyes shift back to the west and to the area between the Battle of Paardeberg on the Mora River and the capital of the Orange Free State Republic, Bloemfontein. The Anglo-Boer War, embarked upon by both sides with confidence, was now to be maintained by faith, and we shall see how that faith was expressed, and by whom, and what became of it. One of these men of faith was Transvaal President Oom Paul Kruger. Although well into his 70s by this time, he found the energy to climb aboard a rattling Boer train and to travel to both war fronts, in Natal and in the Free State. When he arrived in Natal, he found the Boers in full flight. General Redverse Buller had successfully relieved Ladysmith, and the Burgers wanted to leave for home. Kruger found General Joubert sick with illness and defeat, and tried to stop what had really turned into a stampede. Kruger entreated and exhorted, and promised that he would suggest arbitration to end the war, as long as the men stood firm. Many had decided that it was haste to, or time to go home, and had retreated as far north as Newcastle from Ladysmith before they were persuaded to return to fight. General Joubert had called another council of war for March 5th to determine their future strategy, and it was decided to send as many men as possible to oppose Lord Roberts and his 40,000 men in the Free State. The rest of the Free Staters were left to guard Van Rienen's pass, just in case Buller tried to enter their republic. The Transvaalers withdrew to the Biggersburg, a range straddling Natal, around 50 kilometres north of Ladysmith. It was basically from where they'd started in October 1899, launching their attack into Natal, and now they were back on the summit of the range, where they could look over the country to the south. Buller, in the meantime, made himself comfortable in the newly relieved Ladysmith. Denise Reitz, one of the Boers, watched and wrote, after a while, General Buta reorganized everything, and a new line of defense was established along the forward slopes of the Biggersbergen, to which all available men were marched. We, of the Pretoria Commando, were assigned a post on the shoulder of the mountain to the right of where the Washbank Valley reaches the plain below, and here we lay amongst pleasant scenery, from which we looked over the wide sweep of country to the south, from which we had been driven, but we enjoyed the spell of peace and quiet after the turmoil of the past weeks. The English army was also resting. Far down on the plain, large camps were springing up, and Buller and his men stopped once more. The Boers would patrol quite close to these camps, and then spend their days hiding in the bush, watching the British troops exercising at a distance. The schoolgirl, Frieda Schlossberg, who we've quoted since the start of this series, was quite aware of what was going on to the south. She had kept a running journal since the start of the war, and her unique view is always interesting to hear. In the second week of March 1900, she was living on a farm east of Pretoria called Balmoral, and she wrote in her journal that, A few weeks ago, the Boers were laughing at the world, proud of their victories. But with the relief of Ladysmith and Kimberley, and the surrender of General Cronier at Partenberg, with 4,000 men, they have become depressed. The trains are still running, and we hear from father and my brothers. They sent us what post there is, and also the newspaper which now arrived two or three days late. 
Together, we read of the sudden departure for Europe of a deputation consisting of Mrs. Fisher, Vormerons, and Vessels. The reason for their departure is unknown. It was at that time that General Cronier was hustled off to the pier in Cape Town and boarded HMS Doris for his imprisonment at St. Helena, like Napoleon. Meanwhile, Paul Kruger had arrived in Bloemfontein to confer with President Steyn, the Orange Free State Republic president, on how to manoeuvre their way forward. Bloemfontein was a beautiful town, set up in a shallow depression with water nearby, courtesy of the Modo River, and a large outcrop called Observation Hill, which afforded defenders a view many kilometres distant in all directions. Kruger and Steyn were both convinced that, if Bloemfontein fell to Lord Roberts and the British, then the morale of the folk would be inconsolable and that would lead to defeat. Strategically important, Bloemfontein lies on the main railway line to the north, from Pretoria to Cape Town. Today, the main route south follows the railway line between Johannesburg and Pretoria and Cape Town, and in 1900, it was no different. Kruger knew that if he could somehow delay Roberts and cause him more casualties, the British would waver. What Kruger didn't fully understand was just how convinced the British were that they needed to deal a bloody blow to the uppity Boers. The Empire State was prepared to expend tens of thousands of men, if necessary, in order to subjugate the Boer nation. Kruger and Steyn were caught in the past. They believed if they could recreate the Battle of Majuba, then the British would sue for peace. What was against these two Boer leaders was what was happening in Europe. The British Empire was under pressure from all sides, and the Dutch and French were also taking sides against them. This meant that in order to convince their mortal foes in Europe that they were a real force to be reckoned with, they had to dispatch the tiny nations known as the Transvaal and Free State Republics. Kruger's mission was made more difficult by the action of the much-hated Zarps, or the Zuid-Afrikaanse Politie. They were a Johannesburg police unit. They had been instrumental in driving the tension in Johannesburg between Boer and Britain through their brutal treatment of English-speaking Eightlanders. Now they were wreaking havoc inside Bloemfontein itself. General de la Rey was ostensibly in charge of the Zarps, but he had been ordered out of Bloemfontein following righteous and mutinous behaviour by his troops who were drunken and disorderly, and in some cases had been helping themselves to fresh produce and other goods. We have travelled with General Christian de Vett during these podcasts, and he was set up now at Poplar Grove with 6,000 men between Parteberg, where the Boers had seen General Cronier surrender with 4,000 and Bloemfontein itself. This was a last barricade against the British. Around 12,000 men would be available to Kruger and Steyn, counting the reinforcements now moving from Natal after the Boers had been forced away from Ladysmith. Kruger was aware too of the possibility of diplomacy. He now sent a proposal to the British government in his words, in the sight of God, that all forces withdraw behind their own frontiers and the two republics should be accorded to full independence. That took the British government off guard. While they pretended to consider the request, both Kruger and Lord Roberts were not idle. The Boer president addressed a large crowd in Bloemfontein in early March, then began a slow trip to the battlefront to address the troops. On the way, he stopped off at lagers of both civilians and commanders and repeated his message of continuing the fight for their freedom. 
It was the same message he'd delivered in Natal to General Louis Botha, and it went like this. The moment you cease to hold firm and fight in the name of the Lord, then you have unbelief in you. And the moment unbelief is present, cowardice follows. And the moment that you turn your backs on the enemy, then there remains no place for us to see a refuge. No, brethren, let us not bring all our posterity to destruction. Stand fast in faith and fight. Kruger also invoked Moses and the fight against Pharaoh, a biblical message for people of the Bible. But Kruger's biggest problem was that some of the members of the Burger Commando were not exactly the most God-fearing nation in the region. As our sources like Denise Reitz and Christian de Wett have outlined, many of those involved were mercenaries from Europe and elsewhere who were in it for money and adventure. Others were what we demean as poor whites, living in shacks on the edges of the cities of Pretoria, Johannesburg and Bloemfontein, and eking out a living provided for by the Boer republics. As we have seen, honour was not foremost in the minds of some of these fighters. Witness de Vett's offhand comments at the various battles he's fought, and his extreme dislike of some of his own comrades, who are running away rather than standing and fighting, and you'll understand that Kruger's message was really focused on a small elite, the core of the Boer nation. These were the farmers, and direct descendants of the Voortrekkers, who could trace their bloodline all the way back to the first Dutch in the Cape in the 1600s, and the Huguenots, who fled their persecutions in Europe. They were imbued with a sense of being a chosen people, and Kruger believed this emphatically. However, the reality had begun to dawn for many of the Boer supporters who believed that their days of fighting this British behemoth were limited. General Christian de Wett, in his book Three Years' War, describes what happened next. Kruger eventually arrives at Poplar's Grove, or what he calls Port, which is where the Boers have prepared to fight Lord Roberts's column heading eastwards to Bloemfontein. Kruger arrives at Poplar's Grove on the 7th of March, after his 180-kilometre journey from Bloemfontein by horse and wagon. That such an ageing leader would travel all the way to the battlefront shows just how critical the situation was. As de Wett writes, The President's arrival was, however at an unfortunate moment. Lord Roberts, apparently at this stage, had no idea that his arch-enemy was only a few miles away, and ordered his troops to attack Poplar Grove on the same day that Kruger arrived, March the 7th. Roberts's force extended for over 20 kilometres across the felt, and the right wing was already threatening to overtake the commanders at Petrusburg, a few kilometres to the south. De Wett was forced to take immediate action, and writes... It did not seem possible for the old president even to outspan. Things were moving so quickly. But the horses were exhausted. They had pulled Kruger and his team across rain-soaked roads for nearly 30 kilometres on that day alone, and it was absolutely necessary to rest the beasts. Hardly had the harnesses been removed when a telegram arrived that the British force had in fact captured Petrusburg. And yet... In the moment of victory, still the British managed to almost snatch defeat from its jaws. Lord Roberts and his fellow officers were not in complete agreement about their approach. In the morning of March the 7th, there was the chance of making a momentous bag, one that would have overshadowed the capture of General Cronier and his 4,000. Oom Paul Kruger was an artillery shell away, and Lord Roberts appeared not to know. The Boers' trench line at Poplar Grove straddled a line of kopjes for 24 kilometres on either side of the Mora River and around 60 kilometres upstream of Kimberley. 
It was the last natural defensive line on the march to Bloemfontein. Roberts planned his attack based on what he'd learned at Powder Bag and wanted his cavalry to work with the mounted infantry units and horse artillery and to make a 30-kilometer detour around the Boers' eastern flank. That was the Pietrasburg thrust that worried De Wett so much. Then General French would attack the lagers in the rear, supported by artillery barrages. While this happened, General Kelly Kenny's 6th Division, the Scots Guards Brigade and Tucker's 7th Division, would then attack the Boers from the right on the south bank of the Moda River. Meanwhile, Colville's 9th Division and some mounted infantry would attack the Boers on the north bank of the Moda, a classic pincer movement that Roberts believed would lead to the Boers making a dash to escape, then they'd be caught by the cavalry and crushed. It was a plan for some rough shooting. Take some guns and cavalry, go around to the back of the hill, as Roberts commanded, or they'd be the beaters in a pheasant hunt. Then Kelly Kenny and his infantry would round up these Boer pheasants. The trouble was the Boers did not behave like pheasants. They panicked immediately and ran long before the cavalry managed to get into position. It was something that upset Christian de Vett, but actually saved him and his men from annihilation. The vet writes, a panic had seized my men. Before the English had even got near enough to shell our positions to any purpose, the wild flight began. Soon, every position was evacuated. It was a flight such as I had never seen before and shall never see again. He wrote this with disdain. But this unintended panic saved many of the Boers from the cold steel of the cavalry and the 100 British guns which were going to rip them to shreds. 6,000 Boers, led by the top hat-bearing President Paul Kruger, fled across the felt, while 42 of the British mobile guns thundered after them. To Roberts's disgust, General French of the cavalry did not pursue. Instead of the hacking and skewering that Roberts expected, the cavalry then slowed to a walk and then dismounted. Roberts was watching this through his binoculars with an open mouth. He was so shocked. A few hundred Boer riflemen were left behind to hold up the British, and they managed to stop several thousand cavalry. It was Christian de Vett again, masterfully making the best of a bad situation. He rode two horses almost to death in an attempt to halt the retreat and did manage in turn to convince a few of his men to remain in their trenches and then take pot shots at the advancing British, which stopped them in their tracks. Lord Roberts, however, was beside himself with rage. We should have a good chance of making the two presidents prisoner if French had carried out my orders of making straight for the Moda River instead of wasting valuable time going after small groups of the enemy. It got worse. French, who'd relieved Kimberley and was Cecil John Rose's golden boy for doing so, was in danger of facing his own general's brutal riposte. Roberts accused French of wretched horse mastership in allowing them to be burnt out in the rush to relieve Kimberley and then in the rush to capture General Cronier. That was an example of a commanding officer blaming his own failures on those of his men. It was Roberts who ordered French to relieve Kimberley at all costs. French, in turn, blamed Lord Roberts for his hapless transport arrangements and their breakdown. Sir Douglas Haig, Roberts's chief of staff and future commander of the British Army in the First World War, said, 
I have never seen horses so beat as ours that day. They have been having only a pound of oats a day, and practically starving since February 11th. So many colonial scallywag corps have been raised that the horses of the hold force could not have a full ration. Another of the divisions inside the British force was clear, that between the full-time army corps and English-speaking volunteers from inside colonial South Africa. And General Haig really hated the colonials, saying they were behind the constant looting of Boer homes and towns, which was true. General Kelly Kenny also spent some time reaching the Boers' trenches, and Roberts had a go at him too. Kelly Kenny, as we've seen, was an oddity, an Irish nationalist fighting in the British army. He admitted he would have attacked earlier if he had known the Boers were retreating headlong. But Kelly Kenny couldn't see that from where he was, and Roberts didn't actually issue new orders. Furthermore, his 6th Division had been virtually starving since Christian de Vett had captured the food convoy at Waterfall Drift many weeks before. There was only one water cart per battalion of 1,000, which meant half a water bottle for each man. In South Africa's summer, that was really asking for trouble. As we'll see in the next podcast, poor quality water is a killer. Not only did Roberts fail to capture Kruger and the rest, he also failed to understand that the Boer morale had not completely broken. Milner, as the governor of the Cape, had also come to this mistaken conclusion. Basically, as the Boers fled Poplar Grove, the British government believed they were on the run and that was it, they were finished. It was one of the biggest strategic mistakes of this terrible war and was to lead to it dragging on for three long years, instead of coming to an end within weeks, which is what the British now believed. We will end at this point, as the British army is about to march into Bloemfontein with its fresh water and food, and as Thomas Pakenham, the author, writes, their pretty female inhabitants. The Boers were in full retreat, the British marching to Pretoria. All seemed under control. So join me next week for episode 28 of the Anglo-Boer War podcast, when we follow Roberts and his men into the Free State capital. But awaiting them, apart from prettiness and a fresh spring, after all, Bloemfontein means flower spring, awaiting them was a terrible outbreak of typhoid, which was to kill more of the British over the next few weeks than the Boers had managed. And the Boers had done a very good job of that. Please rate this podcast on iTunes if you can, and you can follow our website, abwarpodcast.com, while we are on Facebook at Anglo Boer War Podcast. You can also direct message me on Twitter. I'm at Des Latham. Till next week, goodbye. <laughs> Een zonder gedaan langs die moeire vierste waal, het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O, breng mij terug naar die oud Transvaal, daar waar mijn zaar is.